You're listening to The North Podcast, a ministry of Mount Perrin North in Marietta, Georgia. Today, we're starting a brand new series entitled, Don't Take My Word For It. In this three-part series, we'll tackle some tough questions as we examine the foundations of our faith. You will not want to miss a single week. At the conclusion of today's message, be sure to stick around to learn more about North and how you can be a part of all that God is doing right here in Marietta. But for now, here's part one of Don't Take My Word For It. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you today? It is good to see you. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to read verse 6 to start off with. And uh, while you're turning, I want to make special mention. Um, I'm so delighted and happy to have my sister, Gina Bean, with me today. She's sitting right over here. I am always proud of her, but I also am very aware that curious minds want to know who the pretty girl standing next to me in worship is, so I just need to let you know that too. I know. Today we're beginning a brand new series called Don't Take My Word For It. We are looking at how do we know that the things that we believe are actually true? Today we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. We're going to look next week about uh, how do we know Christianity is the best way of all the ways that are out there, of all the religions. And then we're going to look the final week at how do, what is the difference when the Holy Spirit is leading our lives. And um, I'm excited about this one. I need to let you know right up front, this is going to be a different way for me. Um, I typically don't use a ton of notes and they just, I, I don't engage much with them. I'm going to be with my notes a lot because I have a lot of information technical to give you. And I'm going to make sure that it's accurate this morning. And so most of the time, I really look forward to seeing your eyes a lot. I'm going to see your eyes a little bit less, but I want to make sure what I tell you is accurate because I'm going to give you a lot of historical data as well today. So in John chapter 14, verse uh, 6, it says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This week, I want to talk to you about one way. Next week, we're going to talk about one truth, and the following week, one life. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the privilege to be able to come into this place and worship you. Thank you for the presence that's been in this place already. And thank you for the word of God that we're going to open up today. God, I pray that you would anoint me today with the words you've given me to say, anoint the words so they go forth, anoint our ears to hear them and our hearts to receive them so you may accomplish your perfect will. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise for it in Jesus' wonderful holy name. Amen and amen. So this is a famous passage where Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And the reason why he even says this is he is, the night before he is going to be crucified, three days before he is going to rise from the dead, he spends some time with his disciples and he tells them that he's going to be handed over, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to rise from the dead, that he eventually is going to go and prepare a place for them and he's going to come back and take us back with him and take us into heaven. And he says, you know the way and you know where I'm going. And then one of the disciples says, how can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, this is a passage that a lot of people that are skeptics or they're just cursory followers of Jesus, they like what Jesus they think stands for. They like that he is love. They like that he is grace. They like that he is forgiveness. They like all of those things. But when they hear a verse like this, they don't like this at all because they say, well, I don't like this. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through him. This feels exclusive. This feels like he's excluding people. And I like it to think that 
All roads just lead to heaven. All religions just lead to God. I'm comfortable with that. I need you to understand something. You can be sincere about something. You can be sincere about a religion, but you can also be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not the proof of truth. It's just the proof of devotion. Sincerity does not prove anything. What Jesus is doing, is there some exclusivity to it? Yes, but that's not his purpose. His purpose is to say, listen, I know all of the options that you have. I know all of the things that people say that will lead you to God. But can I tell you something? None of those are going to get you to God. And I love you too much to not show you which is the way. I came from heaven to earth to provide the sacrifice for your sins. And I want you to listen to me. He says, I am the only way to God. And you need to follow me because I want you to get to the Father. It's not as much about being exclusive as it is of all of the ways, directional saying, this is the path. This is the way you should follow. Why is that important? Because there will come a time in your life where your faith is tested. Where your faith and what you say you believe and what you say you stand on is put to the test. There's coming a time when God doesn't answer your prayer the way you wanted him to. And you're going to have to ask yourself, do I really believe what I believe? There's coming a time when God isn't speaking loudly or clearly enough to you or as you want him to. There's going to come a time when you face a professor or a teacher who claims that your beliefs are inferior to their facts. There's coming a time where your friend or your family member wants to challenge your faith. And you're going to have to figure out, do I believe what I believe and why do I believe it? Now, as followers of Jesus, we turn to Scripture. We turn to Scripture for the answer because we believe that God's Word contains the truth that we need to face every circumstance in our lives. So the real question this morning is, why as we start this series, why are we starting with the resurrection of Christ? I mean, we just talked about Jesus rising from the dead last week on Easter. But why is the resurrection so important? Because if the resurrection isn't true, nothing else matters. If the resurrection isn't true, Jesus just becomes another person who tried to found a religion that gave their life for it, if the resurrection isn't true. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. That's why in the famous scripture, Romans 10 and 9, when it talks about salvation, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You know why? Because if you believe that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead, then there is nothing that God cannot do. And there is no one else that we should be serving except him. It literally changes everything. Because if the resurrection is true, then the Bible is true. If the resurrection is true, then sin really is defeated. If the resurrection is true, then Satan really is defeated. If the resurrection is true, hell is defeated. Death is defeated. The grave is defeated. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus Christ truly is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no denying it. The reason we focus on the resurrection is because it changes everything if it's true. So what does the Bible say about the resurrection? Well, the Bible says in Luke chapter 24 that early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. 
And the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? If you don't have anything against that, you just should underline that in your Bibles. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and he would rise again on the third day. So on the resurrection day account, it tells us that they went looking for him. Angels appeared, said he isn't here. He's risen from the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14 is a teaching about 30 years, 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the belief of the church is solidified in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What it says is this, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So why is the resurrection important? Because it changes everything about my life now and my future and my eternity. And the way that I approach life, the way I approach death, the way I approach difficult circumstances in my life, if the resurrection is actually true. So the Bible tells us that the resurrection is true. And we as believers, for the most part, we believe it because the Bible tells us and we believe the Bible to be true. And that we've experienced that resurrection power in our own lives that had been changing things in our lives. But what do you do when your faith is put to the test And you come to a circumstance where you have to reach outside of Scripture to strengthen your faith. I'm going to just share with you what's called the minimal facts approach. Um, I'm going to skip over a little bit of some of of this. Um, I'm going to provide some notes for you um, uh, tomorrow. So if you're taking notes, take some notes, but you don't have to write down everything. Some of the data that I'm sharing and the data points that I'm sharing, historical stuff, we're going to post on the website for you tomorrow so you can go along with that. I want you to just kind of lean in to what's being said this morning. This approach, though, was established years ago, and under this approach, we basically consider facts that meet two criteria. There must be strong historical evidence supporting them, and the evidence must be so strong that the vast majority of today's scholars, even skeptics, accept them as historical facts. They don't necessarily agree with the conclusion, but they accept the facts as being true. So I'm going to give you five facts about the resurrection this morning. Okay, you ready? No one's ready. Oh, this is awesome. If you'll just roll 945 service right now on the screens, I'll just... Fact number one, Jesus was killed by execution. Jesus was killed by execution. According to Lacona, who is one of the major proponents of this and one who established this, he says, even an extreme liberal... By, named John, John Dominic Croissant, who is a man who didn't believe that Jesus needed to die. So his theology is he doesn't need to die as a penalty for our sin. But even he recognizes that the killing of Jesus, the execution of Jesus, is an indisputable historical fact. There are skeptics, there are atheists, there are agnostics down the line. You can look at some of those facts tomorrow that believe indisputably, it is inarguable that Jesus was killed. Why is that important? Because you can't have a resurrection unless someone is what? So the argument is that Jesus never died. One of the theories is called a swoon theory, that, there, that he hung on the cross and he became so um, deteriorated in his physical form that his heart stopped beating or went to a, uh, such a low rate that they couldn't detect it. They threw him in a tomb and then eventually he revived again. That's a theory that's out there. One that's being, that, that is purported. So historically, 
We know that even atheists, agnostics, and even theologians that don't believe in the necessity of Jesus' death for our sins, all vast majority of them, vast majority say that this is a historical fact, that he indeed did die. All four Gospels testify that Jesus rose from the dead. Why is that important? I realize they're part of Scripture, but as part of historical data, there are eyewitness accounts. Two of them are first-hand eyewitnesses. Two of them are second-hand eyewitnesses. Matthew and John are first-hand eyewitnesses. They are disciples of Jesus. They saw him crucified. They saw him put in a tomb. They saw him raised from the dead. The other two, Luke and Mark, are second-hand. Mark is the gospel according to Simon Peter. It's Simon Peter's account of everything that happened. And Luke is one who went and investigated by all of the first-hand witnesses that he could find and wrote in his gospel, in the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. That's important. Let me tell you two other things that are really important. Based on what the world considers historical facts and data, what is acceptable that historians will accept something? So there are two historians. One is a Roman historian named Tacitus. Tacitus is where we get most of the information and most of the history and most of what is relied on and considered to be true about all Roman history. He's the historian. Tacitus says that Jesus was killed and executed under Roman rule. Josephus, who is the main historian for the Jewish people, testifies that Jesus was put and killed to put to death and killed under the rulership of Pilate, Pontius Pilate. So the two main historians, the ones that everyone accepts as accurate on Jewish history and Roman history, both say Jesus died and that his followers believed that he rose from the dead. This is huge. This is important. Why is it important? Because if you say you believe in Roman history based on Tacitus, but you don't believe in the resurrection, or if you say you believe in Jewish history because of Josephus and you don't believe in the resurrection, then you begin to pick and choose what you think is accurate information from a historian, and you no longer are looking for truth. You're becoming a hypocrite. You say, well, I don't like that. Okay. You can't decide what is. If you accept it as true, you accept them as true. And so they verify that this happened. So main historians, all of this. The fact number one is this. Jesus was, in fact, according to history, killed, executed. Fact number two is this. Is there is the conversion of Paul who used to be a persecutor of the church. And we talked about Paul last week some. But the main thing I want you to see about Paul is this. We have six ancient sources in addition to Paul that claim that Paul had an experience with Jesus on a road to Damascus that changed his life and that Paul, instead of being a persecutor of a church, became an evangelist and church planter who literally suffered so much. These six different sources are Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Tertullian Dionysius of Corinth, and Origen. All of them say these. All of them testify to these things. Now, why is that important? Because Paul says in one of his writings that he has endured so much suffering that he has been beaten so many times, taken outside of town, flogged, which means with a whip, whipped with it where your skin literally comes off, begins to move off your body, that he has been excommunicated, that he has been imprisoned, and he says, twice I was stoned. That is not what you think it means in today's... What he means is this, as a, as a way they tried to execute him, they literally took up stones and tried to pummel him to death. But he said he survived both of those times. And then eventually he gave his life and was beheaded for his faith. 
what causes someone who used to persecute the church to endure that much suffering and give their life to become a martyr? Because the truth is, liars make poor martyrs. You don't give your life for something you really don't believe. So Paul, who by history tells us was a persecutor of the church, now becomes a follower of Christ and gives his life for Christ. The third fact is a man named James who is a skeptic and he is the half-brother of Jesus. He moves from being a skeptic to believing in Jesus to such an extent he will also give his life. The Bible tells us, both the book of John and the book of Mark tell us, that, that James is a skeptic. He doesn't believe that his brother is the Son of God. He doesn't believe his brother is the Messiah while Jesus is doing his earthly ministry. None of it. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that James and his brothers and his mom go to a house where Jesus is teaching, and they go there for one reason. They go there to take him by force because they said he is out of his mind. They thought Jesus was crazy during his earthly ministry. But something changes. All of a sudden, the one who thinks his half-brother is crazy, something changes, and just within months of the resurrection, James not only is a believer, he becomes an established leader in the church. What would happen to cause a skeptic to change that much? He had to have seen one who was dead, now alive again. So, we know Jesus was killed by execution. We know that Paul, who used to be a persecutor of the church, now gives his life for the cause of Christ. We know that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic, now is a leader in the church and will eventually give his life as well for what he believes, that Jesus has risen from the dead. The fourth fact is this, is that Jesus' tomb was indeed empty. Now, this is a huge separation point. Every founder, every leader of every religion that has ever been, you can go to their grave, you can see where they're buried, and no one, no one says that their body's not there. But the fact is, is that there's claims that Jesus' tomb is empty, and not just claims, that it is actual facts. How do we know that? Well, there's what's called the, the, the Jerusalem factor. And what that means is this, is that in the Jerusalem factor, everything was localized. It all happened in Jerusalem. And yes, during Passover when he was crucified, there's about 200,000 people there. But during normal times, there's about 50,000 people. This is a small town. They know everything. They know where everybody lives. They know where every cemetery is. They know. People know. They saw him crucified. They know where his body was laid. They know all of this. And we know within 50 days that Simon Peter at a different feast called Pentecost, where once again, the streets are swollen to about 200,000 people. This man who denied Jesus three times on the night that he was arrested, who wasn't even there when Jesus was crucified, who literally wanted to quit the ministry and Jesus reinstated him after he rose from the dead, met with Simon Peter, the Bible tells us, and reinstated him and it changed everything. This same man stands on the same streets when he was afraid to show his face in a courtyard 50 days earlier. He stands on the streets that are swell with 200,000 people and he he says, this same Jesus whom you all crucified 
God raised from the dead and is alive forevermore and is Lord forever. And the Bible says that 3,000 people were convinced that day to follow Jesus. And that every day after that, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, here's the point. If you lived in Jerusalem and this man stood up 50 days later and said, he is alive, you're the Jewish leaders or you're the Roman authorities. Do you know how you put that rumor to bed? You literally go to the tomb that's right down the road. You open it up. You take the body out and you show everybody that that's a lie. But no one does because the tomb is empty. As a matter of fact, even those who are his enemy confirm that the tomb is empty. The book of Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders pay the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb and reported as being empty. They pay them and tell them that you were to say this, say that his disciples came and stole the body. We know from Jewish history that this was something that was being talked about, that the body was stolen in that. Regardless of that theory, if you've made up a theory and a story that a body has been stolen, what does that mean about the tomb? It's empty. You don't make up a story. You don't say, well, this is how it got empty without it being empty. We know the tomb is empty. We know the tomb is empty because they could have proven if Jesus' body was there, they could have easily proved it. We know that they've made up stories as to why the tomb was empty. The third reason we know, and this goes back to biblical authority, is that the Bible is so truthful in the way that it presents the gospel that it doesn't even hide facts that you wouldn't use normally. Like, if you were writing this story and you wanted to convince somebody, there are some things that the Bible includes that you would say, I don't think I'd have said it that way. So one of them is this, is the testimony of women. Before you get mad at me, listen to what I'm about to say. In Roman society, in Jewish society, women were considered second-class citizens in that day where they wouldn't even be able to testify in open court. They weren't considered credible witnesses. And yet the Bible tells us in two places that the first people to discover that the tomb was empty was women. If you're making up this story, if you're writing it to get everybody to believe, you don't write it that way. You write it a different way. But the fact that they include these make us understand that the Bible is trying to communicate truth to us and not trying to make up a story. We know the tomb is empty. So the real question is, why is the tomb empty? The fifth fact is this, is that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead and he appeared to them. How do we know that? Paul testifies about the other disciples' belief, that he had met with them and they had communicated with him and he's had his own personal encounter. But in 1 Corinthians 15 and 11, he says, whether it was I or they, this is what we preach referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, whether I preach it, you know they preach it. We all believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that they believe that Jesus had returned from the dead. We know that. We know that the oral traditions that are passed down we know that those things were, were there, the creeds and the hymns and the songs that people would use to memorize because they didn't do a lot of writing during that time period. We know that Paul writes to the church at Corinth one of these creeds that was very early 
in, the, in his ministry in this. He writes this, but we know this. Most scholars believe he learned this creed from, James, um, excuse me, from John and Peter about three years after his conversion, which would be five years, within five years of Jesus' resurrection, this creed had made its way so far in the church world that it was now being memorized and repeated. And here was what the creed is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. That's, that's a creed that was around early on. But here's the important part. He, he names names. Go talk to Simon Peter. Go talk to the 12. Go talk to James. They're all alive right now. As a matter of fact, there were 500 people that saw him alive. Most of them are still alive today. And you can go find them and talk to them right now. He's saying, I'm telling you truth, and you can go ask the people right now. There's sermons that were preached early on where he, Paul writes in Acts chapter 13 something very similar to what Simon Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. He's saying the one that you look to, David, that the Messiah is going to be like, his body is still there. His body is decayed, but not Jesus. His body never saw decay because God raised him from the dead. We know in the written works of the early church and the gospel accounts about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And the reason why they're so important is I want to give you, if you have trouble, if you're a skeptic, or you're dealing with a skeptic, you can actually prove the truthfulness or veracity of Scripture based on worldly reasoning. Here's what I mean. The way that you determine whether something is accurate history is how many copies are there of the history and how close are they to the actual event. So how far away are they? The further away, the less you trust them. The closer they are, the more you trust them. As a matter of fact, the two main sources that we have for Alexander the Great, they are written 400 years after he lived and died. And those are the documents that we base all our history of Alexander the Great on, and we accept them to be true. Because in history, 400 years is considered to be close. The New Testament, we have an unbelievable amount of documents, fragments of documents, the first, docu- the first gospel was written somewhere around 35 to 40 years after Jesus was born. It would be the book of Mark. The latest one would be 70 years, which would be the book of John. Okay, that's the latest one. The very latest that anyone, predict, that anyone marks that the gospels could be written is 70 years. And yet still people deny it. So here's the thing. If you accept something 400 years removed, but deny something 35 to 70 years removed, you're not actually depending on data, you're depending on your biases. As a matter of fact, if you're ever facing, so for you that face colleagues, for students that face professors or coworkers or classmates, and they want to tell you that you believe something 
by faith, but they believe because of data and science and facts. Won't you hear me on something? Okay, I am not anti-science. Okay, not in the least. Not in the least. But there are three levels that I want to give you in science. One is a hypothesis. A hypothesis is an idea that you think might be true that's never been tested. A theory is something that you believe to be true, but it cannot be adequately tested enough in order to be considered to be unchangeable, immutable, completely truthful. Then there is what is called a law. A law is, it's been proven over and over again, law of gravity. Throw the ball up in the air, it's going to come down. You jump off this stage, you're going to come down. Okay, that's been proven over and over again. But let me give you an example. A lot of times you're going to face things like theories of evolution, all these things. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about microevolution, little changes. I'm talking about macroevolution that considers that to be part of how people got here today. I want to remind you of something. There is no law of evolution. There is a theory of evolution that cannot be tested, cannot be proven, but is believed almost universally in academic circles. The reason I tell you this is I want to give you something that will help you. The truth is, all of us live by faith. Even those who say they believe and depend on science, they believe it in faith. If you can't prove something, you have to believe it by faith. There is no other way. So if something is not provable, you have to say, well, I'm relying on as much data as I can, but it can't be proven, so I believe it. If you can ever get someone who you're having a discussion with to realize and come to the realization that they live by faith, it changes everything. I've had conversations with people in this, and I've just said, can you prove that? Has anyone ever proven it? And, and when they say, well, we'll know that, but there's a vast amount of data, but can you prove it? No. So you live by faith too. You live by faith in unproven data. I live by faith that I believe the word of God is true and that Jesus Christ is true. This is important. It's important because what you believe changes how you live. The disciples believed that not only Jesus was the son of God, but that he rose from the dead and it changed their lives to such an extent that all of them who abandoned him on the night that he's crucified, all of them, with the exception of the apostle John, will give their lives as martyrs for Jesus. All of them. And liars make poor martyrs. Now, just because you give your life for something doesn't, doesn't mean um, that it's true. I mean, there are religious fanatics that will be terrorists that they believe something to be true and they'll give their life for it. But here's the difference. The disciples, the apostles, they know. They know whether Jesus is dead or alive. They know whether they've made up that story or not. And when it comes time at the end of their lives when they're faced with this choice, you either denounce Jesus, denounce his lordship, denounce that he was raised from the dead, denounce it all, or we're taking your life, or you're going to go to the gallows, you're going to go and you're going to be crucified, you're going to be beheaded. Listen, nobody goes to the grave for a lie. Nobody. 
Some people may do it because they believe something to be true, but nobody does it when you know it's a lie. And they changed everything because Jesus changed everything. Listen, if the resurrection is true, it was worth them giving their lives for. If the resurrection is true, it's worth giving our lives for. And maybe it's not you have to give it up to death, but it is worth giving every day, every minute, every moment of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is true, that means nothing is beyond the power of Jesus in your life. If the resurrection is true, that means your sickness is not beyond God's power because Jesus is alive. If it's true, that means your sorrow is not beyond God's power because Jesus is alive. If it's true, it means your suffering is not beyond God's power because Jesus is alive. If it's true, it means your hope is not in vain because Jesus is alive. If it's true, it means your joy is not diminished in difficult circumstances because Jesus is alive. If it's true, it means your dreams that you thought were dead and dried up, they are not dead and dried up because Jesus is alive. In John chapter 11, Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus who has been dead for four days. And the Bible tells us that he is approached by Lazarus' sisters. And he asks them this question. He said, do you believe that Lazarus can live again? And the answer was, I believe that he'll live again at the resurrection of the dead. That's not what Jesus asked. She's talking about theoretically down the line, do I believe that he'll eventually, I'll see him again. He says, do you believe he can live right now? And when she says, I believe he'll live at the resurrection, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will never truly die. That disease doesn't have final say over your body. That death doesn't have final say over your life. That discouragement doesn't have final say over your life. Depression doesn't have final say over your life. But the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who immediately looked towards that grave and said, Lazarus, come forth, can speak into your circumstance right now. And what you thought was dead, he can say, come forth now. And he can live again. Because nothing is beyond his power. you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Hey, if you're in this room today and you know things aren't right between you and the Lord, and you know that you need to put your trust in the one who is above all things, the one who has all power, all authority, and his name is Jesus, just pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that it is a reality that you died for my sins, that you rose to new life and you are alive today. And I thank you that because of that, I can have life. I don't have to live in my past. I don't have to live in my present circumstances that I think are going to crush me. But I can live with life and life more abundantly because of what you've done. And so I ask you today, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from unrighteousness in my life. And give to me hope through salvation as I yield my life to your lordship. Now I'm going to ask everyone in the room, just pray this prayer profession and say, Jesus, I give you my life. Come on, one more time. Jesus, I give you my life. Now I want your heads to stay bowed, your eyes stay closed, nothing but no one but me and the ministry team looking around. 
If that's you, I'm not here to embarrass you, but if that's you, you know when you came in this room, things weren't right between you and the Lord, and you say, now today I'm making a decision to follow him for the first time, or the first time in a long time. That's me. Pray for me this week, Pastor. If that's you, would you raise your hand really high and keep it up just a moment, please? Thank you. Thank you. Just, just a moment. Thank you. Thank you. Best decision you've ever made. Amen. All right, you can put them down. Father, I thank you right now for lives that have been changed and redeemed and hope that has been given. And I pray that in your name, that the weight of sin is lifted off of their shoulders and the joy of the Lord begins to invade their hearts and souls and minds. I ask, Lord, that in these next few moments, as we pray one for the other, I pray that, that in the name of Jesus, that whatever they face, whatever feels like it is overwhelming, whether that is financial, whether it's physical, whether it's work-related, whether it's emotional, whatever that is, God, I pray in Jesus' name that they bring it to you, the resurrection and the life, and the things that they were thought dead will begin to live again in the name of Jesus. I pray that hope would begin to rise up within them, and I pray that, Lord, when we leave this place, a boldness would come over us. Now, as we enter into prayer time, Lord, I pray that the, the words of the the things the enemy might try to say to us to say, no, you don't need to do anything. Don't let anybody pray for you. I pray that those things would fall aside and faith would rise up today as people come forward and allow someone to pray with them and agree with them in prayer that Jesus is enough and that Jesus changes everything in their lives. And Lord, for that already, for what you're going to do, we're going to go and give you praise in advance for it in Jesus' name by faith. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. As our prayer team comes and takes their place, we're going to begin to worship together. If you have a need, financial, physical, whatever that need is, maybe it's emotional, whatever the need is, I want you to just step out, let someone pray with you, and let's believe that Jesus Christ will change everything in your life. Let's do that now.
fixed on Jesus today. Can we just give him our faith, our belief that here now, Father, in this moment, that you change everything. Jesus, Jesus. One more time, can we just sing? Chains fall in this place we sing. Chains fall with me today in acknowledgement of his presence here. We love you, Lord. We welcome you here. We are glad that the one who changes everything is alive and in this room with us today. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you've begun in our hearts. God, we thank you for the work that you will complete. 
in us. So today we surrender ourselves to you, Lord, and pray that you would continue to change us, to transform us, to change our situation, our circumstances, Lord, to change our lives, our hearts, our minds, God. We submit all those things to you and more today in this place today, God. And we will give you praise and we give you all the honor, Lord, all the glory. It's all yours, Lord, because you are the one who changes everything. So we give you praise in this place today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's give God praise together. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Wow, so glad that you're here with us at Mount Perrin North this morning. Before we go today, a couple of details as you get ready to go. If you are brand new to Mount Perrin North, just been here a few weeks and you're checking us out and you want to connect with us, we sure would love to connect with you. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. It says, I'm new. We would love for you to fill out that card today to let us know that you're here. But maybe you've been here for a long time and you're ready to take your next step. It could be baptism. It could be joining a group, joining a team. It could be attending our North Life class, which helps you discover your spiritual gifts and helps you discover more about our church. Then I want you to fill out the next steps card because we believe that everybody here has a next step. So whatever card you fill out, we would love to meet you in person. Take that card back to the atrium, the big room on the ground floor right behind us and look for the next steps area. Our connections pastor is there and today he's wearing this really brightly colored floral shirt. You cannot miss him. Pastor Drew's back there. Go make fun of his shirt if you would, please. That would be awesome if you would do that. But go see Pastor Drew and if you can't make it by there, you can drop those cards in the seat back online. You guys can connect dig digitally through the means that we give you there in the chat. Uh, a couple of things before you go. You may receive a yellow card as you go. This is for our current ser sermon series. If you enjoyed today, and maybe think, hey, there's a friend of mine that's got some questions. I need to invite them to church. Use this as an invite card to get somebody back at church with you next week to learn more uh, as Pastor Kirk teaches us. And also the Bloom Conference is less than two weeks away and registration's filling up and we've only got a few days left. And I, like I said last week, she's not crazy. She's a Christian comedian. She's supposed to look like that. So don't let her scare you off. Carrie Pomrelli, she's a really Really great Christian comedian. Ladies, you're going to really enjoy her, her comedy and her ministry. But check out these cards on the way out. You can use these to invite folks or just scan and uh, connect and register for the conference. We'd love to have you back with us, ladies, in a couple of weeks on April 29th. Pastor Kirk's coming now to close out our service. God bless. Hey, when you look for Pastor Drew, he said, look for a bright floral shirt. That's something that will never be said about me, just so you know, right? <laughs> Bland and predictable. That's who I am. Hey, why don't you celebrate with me today? 11 people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ today. Come on. Amen. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or in the last few weeks, or if you want some more information about North um, and you can't make it out to the atrium area, some of our grow team will be right down here. You give us about two minutes of your time and we'll be glad to kind of point you in the right direction. We are so happy for you and proud of you of the decision that you have made. Let me have the privilege of blessing you before you leave. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you. Love you, folks. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to learn more about North, be sure to check out our website at mountparinnorth.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at info at or give us a call at 770-578-9081. And if you're in the Marietta, Georgia area, we'd love to have you join us for worship next Sunday at 945 or 1115 a.m. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.